Hello, this is Mike Zinko. Joining me today is Jamil Jaffer, the inaugural director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. Previously, Jamil was a longtime scholar and litigator of national security and human rights issues with the ACLU, including finishing up his time there as the ACLU's deputy legal director. Among his many important legal articles, essays, and op-eds, he was the co-author with the awesome Amrit Singh of the book Administration of Torture, a documentary record from Washington to Abu Ghraib and beyond. And more recently, he just published a great book that I highly recommend called The Drone Memos, Targeted Killing, Secrecy, and the Law, published with New Press out just this month. You can follow him on Twitter at Jamil Jaffer, that's at J-A-M-E-E-L-J-A-F-F-E-R, and just Google his name and read everything that he's done recently. Jamil, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Tell us, first of all, what are some of the goals of the uh, inaugural Knight First Amendment Institute? What do you hope to get done? Well, the, the Institute was established to defend and expand the freedoms of speech and the press in the digital age. So we'll work on you know, issues ranging from free speech on social media to government transparency uh, to the use of the Espionage Act against mm -hmm. whistleblowers, you know, all those, all those sort of digital age First Amendment issues. Uh, and we'll litigate, we'll have a research program, and we'll do public programming. So we're just starting up right now, but uh, I'm hoping that we will be active beginning early in the new year. Presumably the next incoming administration and the various telecommunications uh, multinationals will give you enough work to do no matter what. So, Yeah, it does look like there's going to be a lot to do. <laughs> uh, one of the most uh, interesting facets of your career uh, has been highlighting how secrecy is used as a sort of barrier to judicial review of the war on terrorism. Um, and a lot of what your book, uh, The Drone Memos, covers is how the Obama administration uh, has employed various and shifting and fictitious justifications uh, of secrecy to hide and shield what they are doing. Talk a little bit about some of the fights you've had, and you mentioned some of them in your book about bringing to light uh, some of the documents that under, uh, undergird the war on terror, and specifically some of the FOIA fights you've had with the circuit courts. Sure, yeah. So so we, we started litigating... Um, uh, a couple of Freedom of Information Act requests in 2010. We were asking for information about, uh, well, information about the drone campaign, including the legal memos that were the basis for some of the strikes, as well as information about civilian casualties. And the first response we got, at least from the CIA, was, um, what drone campaign? <laughs> right. you know, the CIA said, uh, you know, we can't confirm or deny uh, that we have records responsive to your request. Uh, it's called a Glomar response because there's a, you know, an old case involving uh, a ship that was called the Glomar. Um, and uh, the CIA basically maintained that response for, for a couple of years, saying that you know, we, we shouldn't even be required to tell you whether we have records uh, that are responsive to your request. Uh, eventually, that issue went up to the D.C. Circuit, and the D.C. Circuit ruled our way, requiring the CIA to acknowledge what everybody already knew, which is that the CIA was um, uh, involved in the use of drones to carry out targeted killings. And then, then we um, pursued that request and another sort of parallel request uh, in New York, uh, and uh, eventually got the Second Circuit in New York to order the 
uh, Justice Department to release uh, a couple of the Office of Legal Counsel memos that related to the strike that killed Anwar al-Awlaki, who was a U.S. citizen killed by American drones in Yemen in 2011. So some of the documents that uh, that I compile in the book are documents that we were eventually able to obtain through the Freedom of Information Act. And in the book you mentioned going, you know, before Justice uh, Merrick Garland, who went up for the Supreme Court um, and looks like will not be given a, a chance for uh, a hearing, let alone assuming the court, but he, among us, some of the other uh, judges that you argued in front of, um, found the CIA's claims to be sort of false on their face. What, what, what did they think of what the CIA was, was contending? Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, the very odd thing was that the CIA would come into court and say that all of this is a secret, but while <laughs> the CIA was in court, all of these intelligence officials were talking to the press routinely and disclosing information about the drone campaign. Uh, and they were disclosing, uh, you know, exactly the kind of information that, that they would tell the courts uh, couldn't be disclosed. So, you know, that, that, you know, to some extent, that's not an unusual thing in the national security context. You know, as I say in the book, there, there's a, a long history uh, of the intelligence agencies um, playing this kind of double game where, you know, there are, there, are, there are the things that they call secret, and then there are the things that are actually secret. Uh, and there's often some distance between those two categories. But this was this was a really pretty extreme example of that. And after a point, the courts just weren't willing to go along with it anymore. You know, from, from one perspective, you know, I say this in the book too, but, but from one perspective, you know, these were extraordinarily successful lawsuits. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's almost unheard of that... Uh, that federal courts rule that information that the government says is properly classified has to be disclosed. Uh, and it is, I think, literally unheard of that federal appeals courts uh, would rule that way. Uh, so if you look at it from, you know, from that perspective, they do seem like landmark cases. But on the other hand, uh, you know, virtually everything that we got through these uh, FOIA requests uh, was information that, in some sense, the public already had. Right. You know, it, it was, um, we won on what's called the official acknowledgement doctrine. The courts just said that the stuff that the government says is secret isn't really secret. Right. Um, and so, you know, there's another sense in which the, the litigation was really, you know, a lot of sound and fury amounting to not very much at all. Uh, because, you know, most of the information that we were able to pry out of the government was information that, in one form or another, the public already had access to. And even in the 2010 Office of Legal Counsel memoranda that you uh, were able to get and you include in your new book, The Drone Memos, a lot of the legal and policy underpinnings for uh, that strike against, a, again, a U.S. citizen in Yemen, much of that had already been described in speeches and in public statements. What was what? What do you think ultimately was their reason for not providing that, or, or for or for wanting to withhold its public release for so long? Yeah, you know, I think that's a really good question, and I'm not going to pretend to have a complete answer to it. But but here here are you know a few attempts at a partial answer. Um, so, some of it, I think, is just instinctive secrecy. Right. Um, you know, the instinct around national security policy, in particular, is to say that everything is secret. Uh, and that is an instinct that you know long predate that predates this particular administration. It's it's always been the instinct of the intelligence agencies, and it probably always always will be. So that's part of it. 
Uh, part of it is that um, the administration wanted to do what it could to control precisely what information was released and when it was released. Right. So uh, they did disclose a lot of information about the drone campaign, but it was it, it was it was selective disclosure. So you would you would see senior officials quoted in the media talking about the the successes of the campaign. So you know specific high level. Uh, terrorists who were killed in drone strikes, uh, but very rarely or never would you see senior officials quoted about the issue of civilian casualties. Right. Uh, you know, the, the disclosures were, were, were really selective, and they were meant to paint a picture of a campaign that was tightly constrained by law, closely supervised, and very effective. Um, uh, so part of it was about selective disclosure. And then the other, you know, the other factor here, I think, is just um, insulating official decision making from scrutiny and legal accountability. You know, if e- even if all of the facts are known, if the facts haven't been officially acknowledged by the government, right. then when litigants walk into court and they try to challenge the lawfulness of the government's policies, the government can hide behind secrecy. The government can say, "Well, all of this is officially a secret. We can't, you know, we can't be expected to defend our policies or even to acknowledge them." Uh, when all of this is, you know, shrouded in national security secrecy, so part of it was about insulating that, that, that those decisions from uh, from judicial review, which you know turned out to be uh, a fairly successful strategy. And talk about, I mean, if these were traditional, you know, as under U.S. law, traditional military activities, there would be more of a presentation of them, not just in terms of successes and failures, and in you know, carefully scripted, released videos and statements and adjectives. Um, but the administration, and certainly through the lens of the Pentagon and specific military commanders, can be more forthcoming. Um, a lot of these operations have occurred, uh, at least in Yemen and in Pakistan, for sure, under CIA authorities. And because they have the covert shroud, uh, they can therefore um, uh, apparently not be discussed or described in as great a public detail. But as you point out uh, carefully in the book, that sort of justification fell away as the administration, including the president himself, became much more forthcoming. Talk a little bit about the division between covert authorities and classical traditional military activities and whether you think it actually would matter for the purposes of secrecy, transparency, and accountability if these operations were conducted more under military authorities than under the CIA. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, you, you, you sort of summed it up already, which is, you know, the, the extent to which uh, all of this was conducted by the CIA, CIA made it easier for the government to withhold information about it. And, uh, you, you know, when, when it was proposed uh, several years ago that the drone program be, be moved from the CIA to the military or moved entirely from the CIA to the military, I think many human rights advocates saw that as a positive proposal precisely because uh, they expected that it would result in more transparency about uh, about drone strikes. Uh, and I do think that over time, um, the administration has become uh, more transparent about uh, about specific strikes, uh, especially strikes carried out by you know by the military. Right. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't. Th- I think that there's a danger with. Uh, the, the 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 fact that something is done by the CIA doesn't mean that it has to be secret. You know, it means that secrecy is an option, covertness is an option, and um, uh, but sometimes the administration relied on 
they would make it seem like the, COVID, the, the, the fact that the uh, operation had been carried out by the CIA required secrecy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as a legal matter, that's not true. You know, there's, there's no reason why the administration uh, couldn't have been uh, more forthcoming even about um, uh, there's no reason under American law anyway right. that, that the that, that the administration couldn't have been more forthcoming about strikes carried out by the CIA. Um, you know, I, I guess one thing I should say is that um, you know I do think it's important that the public know more about um, why the government is carrying out these strikes, what the result of the strikes is, on what basis the strikes are being are being carried out. I think that kind of transparency is important so that we can have an informed debate about the lawfulness and the wisdom and the effectiveness of uh, of these policies. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't think that transparency would answer all of my complaints, right? So, so um, you know, transparency is a piece of it, but it doesn't exhaust. It doesn't exhaust, as far as I'm concerned, the problems with with these policies. In, in the introductory essay to the book, you sort of end on a glum note that there hasn't been a lot of meaningful constraints placed uh, uh, by any of the branches of government upon these operations, but. You know, I sort of study uses of force going back to everything after Vietnam, starting with the Maigas incident. And I'm, and I'm struck by the fact that most presidents are provided with the policy and legal justification to do whatever they want. So, I mean, do lawyers or legal opinions actually constrain the uses of force, uh, and should they? You, you know, I, um, I, I take your point. I, I think that... Um, you know, there there's a long history of the political branches uh, having a free hand or an almost free hand um, in the context of national security and war. Um, you know, there are some differences here, right? We're 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 now talking about a war that, um, you know, in the view of the Bush administration, is is global. In the view of the Obama administration, is is borderless at least. Right. Um, um, you're talking about uh, a war against non-state actors um, who are harder to distinguish from civilian populations. Um, you're talking about a war conducted uh, in unprecedented secrecy. Um, you know, both the, the the legal basis, the even the fact that the the strikes are being carried out by by armed drones. You know, creates the, the geographic distance. Uh, means that it's easier for the government to keep the consequences of the violence from American eyes. We don't have soldiers coming home in body bags, you know, from from the drone campaign. You know, the drone campaign is a relatively, um, you know, from from the perspective of American policymakers, it must seem like a relatively costless, uh, costless war. And all of that, all, you know, all that sort of together raises. Um, you know, I think presents a kind of different different fact pattern than we've ever been presented with before. So that you know that's part of it. And then part of it is also you know I talk in 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 the book um, uh, about American citizens mm-hmm. who were killed um, in, in some of these drone strikes. And you know I I'm sort of of two minds or about distinguishing American citizens from everybody else, you know, obviously most of the, the victims of the drone campaign are not Americans. Sure. Uh, but I do think that that a government has uh, particular and higher responsibilities with respect to its own 
its own citizens. Um, and the idea that the government, the American government, should be permitted to carry out the killing of, uh, you know, a 16-year-old American kid in Yemen and not have to account to anyone right. for its conduct, uh, you know, to me that seems like it can't possibly, can't possibly be right. It doesn't matter, you know, uh, how much power you think the Constitution gives the political branches in, in wartime or how narrow you think the court's role ought to be in wartime. Uh, but if you're talking, you know, if you're talking about the U.S. government killing a 16-year-old American kid, uh, I think that you should expect the government to, to to explain and account for its 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 conduct. And you know that doesn't seem like a, a you know a lot of people when we made that argument, um, their first reaction was, um, how can you possibly expect the government to have, to have to explain? Uh, this kind of military military action in a court, but if you look at the Supreme Court's post 9/11 jurisprudence, it, the court has repeatedly reviewed the lawfulness of uh, the political branch's decisions during wartime, uh, and it has insisted over and over again that, however broad the political branch's power is during wartime, the courts have. Uh, a crucial role to play when individual liberty is at stake. That's from Justice O'Connor's opinion mm-hmm. in, in Humdi. Uh, and and so I, you know, I actually think that the argument that we were making in court with respect to the American citizens, uh, what was uh, was a very straightforward one that's supported quite well by post 9/11 Supreme Court precedent. So, you know, one of the other things you talk about in the introductory essay to the book, uh, the drone memos is this lethal bureaucracy and aperture is now being handed over from President Obama to President Trump. And I was actually thinking about this today. You, you recall in uh, November, after the election in 2012, the administration made a big effort to publicize its, its formulization and codification of a, quote, drone playbook mm-hmm. because they were worried right, about, right. about uh, potential Mitt Romney uh, receiving these lethal authorities and who knew what he would do with them. And now right. they've then right. sort of expanded even further to President Trump. I mean, what what do you imagine or, or do you project a President Trump could do with some of these authorities and capabilities? Right. Well, you, you know, I, I think that that uh, if there's sort of one overarching point to to my book or to the introduction to the book, it's that we invested all of this power in the presidency because we trusted the president right. and uh, you know didn't think enough about the the obvious fact that those powers were going to be available to the next president and the one after that uh, you know and I think that we we should have built a system that uh, had the possibility of abuse in mind or the possibility of a different president in mind and we you know we didn't and uh, I wish I wish I had a kind of more optimistic message about um, uh, about all of that, but I don't. You know, I think it was a mistake to invest all that power in the presidency. And, you know, President Trump, I find it very difficult to predict what he will do with, with these powers or, for that matter, any other powers. But, but um, you know, it's going to be hard for the courts um, and even Congress to draw lines, you know, having failed for the last eight years to to do so, right. and um, you know, I, I guess you know the 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 most optimistic way of uh, thinking about all this is 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 to think that perhaps the courts will be more skeptical um, of of President Trump uh, than they have been of of President Obama, and if President Trump tries to 
expand the drone campaign or to uh, make targeting standards more permissive, you know, maybe the courts will be uh, will be more skeptical of his policies than they were were of um, of President Obama's. But they're going to have all this precedent to deal with that that was set during the Obama administration. They're going to have to deal with these decisions in which courts essentially said, we have no role to play. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Even when Americans are targeted, we have no role to play. Uh, And they'll have to deal with the transparency cases in which courts said that we have to defer to the executive branch on uh, the question of what can be released and what can't be. And I think that those are, you know, those are dangerous precedents. I, you know, I, I, I would have said that and I was saying it even when President Obama was, um, you know, was in charge. Uh, I think it's at least equally true now, now that President Trump will be in charge. And one of the other interesting aspects of this administration is the legal minds who under, uh, who served President Obama, you know, Letterman, Co., uh, Holder, uh, Barron, even Jay Johnson, they had expressed opinions and they had published uh, information about the conduct of the war on terrorism, about secrecy, including about drone strikes. They came in to power serving the president, were a little more malleable and I would say uh, pliable to supporting the president to a strong executive. But it's hard to identify the legal minds who might be shaping President Trump's viewpoint. So it might be the case where the advisors have less of a, even less of a constraining role on uh, potential uses of force. It might be. It's, it's very hard to know, uh, you know who, who's going to be in President Trump's Office of Legal Counsel. I have, I have no idea. Right. I, you know, I was talking to a, a human rights lawyer the other day, uh, and she expressed concern that uh, potentially she could imagine, one, Guantanamo not just remaining open, but being a place where suspected terrorists who, including our U.S. citizens, are sent to. To what extent, uh, you know, on yeah. the sort of scope yeah. of your concerns, uh, what what do you worry about most? Yeah, I think I mean I think that would be near the top of my list. The the expansion of national security detention using Guantanamo or other you know overseas prisons, um, the expansion of the surveillance state, uh, the the and on the drone campaign. I think the uh, you know the, the 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 program we have in place right now depends to an extraordinary extent on the good faith and conscientiousness and integrity of the people in charge. And, um, you know, I, I, I worry that, that we're not going to have people in charge who, you know, who, who wring their hands over every drone strike and mm-hmm. who, you know, think carefully about civilian casualties. Uh, I worry that there'll be a, a move to make targeting uh, rules even more permissive than they are already. Uh, you know, we we saw you know just just today this New York Times article or yeah. maybe it was yesterday uh, about sort of expanding the scope of of of, of the war uh, authorized by the AUMF to extend to you know, Somalia uh, and and the Shabab. You, you know the, that that's sort of an extension at the margin, but you could you could you know easily uh, conceive of that mo- moving even further outward. Uh, you know, and there there are all these questions that that are sort of in the weeds, but they matter. You know, who, what what counts as directly participating in hostilities, even if the administration, the new administration, recognizes that in some circumstances, 
its authority to use lethal force extends only to people who are directly participating in hostilities. Well, what does that phrase mean? Uh, or these phrases that the Obama administration invented, continuing imminent threat, uh, you know, those have already been given a relatively capacious definition, but that the new administration could um, you know, easily give them an even more capacious one. And, you know, ultimately that's, that's the big problem, that, that all of the rules that are in place right now are rules that were adopted by the executive branch for the executive branch. Right. Uh, and they can be swept away with a stroke of the next president's pen. Um, so I don't really worry that that's going to happen on day one. I would be surprised if it did. But at some point during the Trump administration, we're going to be faced with uh, a national security crisis of one kind or another, and the administration will respond to that crisis. And if history is any guide, uh, one way in which it will consider responding is by uh, loosening already loose constraints on the use of national security powers. And just to echo your point, I mean, my bigger concern is on the on the drone side than on the traditional military side, because you're not going to find traditional military officers who are going to, you know, bomb the crap out of them, as Trump says, or, or, or engage in carpet bombing, in large part because once you're a general officer, you've been in for 30 years, you have an expressed set of norms about how forces use, you have doctrine that guides you, and principles that are reinforced at every step of the chain of command. Um, but in the covert side of things, as you pointed out, it really falls to a few individuals. Like, it really matters Nick Rasmussen, the director right, of the NCTC, right, right, or John right. Brennan at CIA. And when some of these individuals fall away, and under a President Trump, you could see a lot more loosening of uh, rules of engagement than permissiveness, I think. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And I don't mean to suggest, and I don't think you do either, that that the people who are in charge now and who have been over the last few few years, uh, you know, always use these authorities in the way that they should have been used. I mean, I think that there are there's a long list of sure. uh, strikes that that somebody like John Brennan should be you know should be held responsible for, you know, errant or uh, mistaken strikes that that that. You know he should be held responsible for, but at the same time, I do think that that given the system we have in place right now, you know the only check against you know really egregious abuse has to do with the integrity um, and 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 conscientiousness of the the people in charge and and that will change with with the people well, final question uh, to end on hopefully a more hopeful note uh, if you had to go back to a younger uh, more hopeful and positive version of yourself. Uh, what advice would you give to you, or do you give to young legal scholars who are thinking about practicing human rights and national security law? Well, you know, I I, I think that it's it's a it's a very rewarding practice, even even when not everything is going your way. You know, I, um, uh, you know, I was in private practice before I went to the ACLU, and you know, I was doing I had a day job that involved. Uh, of all things, equity derivatives, and um, you know, then I would go and and you know, volunteer for the ACLU, and what I was doing for the ACLU seemed and and was so much more rewarding, you know, in every way except monetarily. Sure. Uh, but but you know, and and I when I eventually went to the ACLU, I didn't expect to stay there very long, but I ended up staying there for 14 years because that feeling of you know actually being involved in something I cared about and occasionally even making a difference. Uh, you know, never really went away. So it, it was an, uh, I, I feel so lucky to have had that, uh, that chance to work at a place like the ACLU and to, to work there for so long. And, 
you know, I think that anyone anyone who who's who's considering it and, and has the opportunity to do it, uh, you know, I would I would encourage them to to do it without any hesitation. Well, that's a wonderful note to end on. And I want to remind people, take a look at the book, The Drone Memos, Targeted Killing, Secrecy, and the Law. It's a compendium of 16 of the key legal uh, documents and speeches given by the Obama administration about drone strikes. Uh, and it's framed by a beautiful introductory essay from Jamil. And it's literally everything you need to know in one book that's just out with the new press to understand the reforms and both taken and not taken by the Obama administration about the use of drone strikes. Uh, Jamil, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Micah.